The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Cizu for Welsh, and welcome to The Wiser Podcast. This week's podcast focuses on lost or absent books, with a particular focus on books by women. We present four short narratives by Tinashe Mushagawanu, Sarah Nuttall, Isabel Hofmeyer, and Confidence Joseph. We begin with an introduction to the topic by Isabel Hofmeyer. As the Wiser podcast team began assembling this podcast, the story of lost books became horribly and shockingly real, as devastating fires engulfed parts of the University of Cape Town campus. One of the most affected buildings was the Jagger Library, which housed significant African studies and rare books collections, along with 70,000 volumes which spanned sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the world. While some of the rare collections in the basement were saved by fire doors, the losses remain incalculable. We dedicate this episode to the scholars, students, staff and workers impacted by this conflagration, as well as the manuscripts, books, films and artifacts destroyed in the blaze. The pandemic has not been kind to our neurotransmitters. Our synapses have had to forget old routines, like going to restaurants and master new ones, like coughing in one's elbow. For some people, reading has fallen victim to these changes. Toiling through text seemed less compelling than getting news of the vaccine. Some readers found they could only read some genres and not others. Philosophers turned to detective fiction and vice versa. Others fantasized about books they couldn't get. During the initial hard lockdown in Johannesburg, libraries and bookshops were closed and we couldn't visit our offices. Just before these realities hit, we at Wiser had intersected with a group called Women on Aeroplanes, an international research and exhibition project. Their focus is on women and independence, tracking those women involved in decolonial struggles across the world. The project had been running since 2018 and had touched down for events in Lagos, Berlin, Warsaw, Bayreuth, Frankfurt and Lahore. Their next stop was due to be Johannesburg in June 2020 for a literary festival, which then had to be taken online. The pieces gathered here formed one strand in the festival under the title The Presence of Absent Books. Participants were asked to talk about lost or absent books more generally, books lost or burned through political persecution and censorship, books not written because of legacies of inequality, books that were written and were ignored, childhood books lost but intensely remembered, imaginary books, books that should have been written, and so on. The talks gathered here takes this rubric in several directions. Tinashe Mushakavanu discusses a novel by Von Vera that was never published. Sarah Nuttall contemplates on books that have been dreamed and books in flight. I talk about books thrown overboard and Confidence Joseph reports on a book burned by social media. In the spring of 2018, I spent a week at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas, Austin. I was drawn there by Yvonne Vera's unpublished novel, Obedience. The book opens like this. In 1890, 
a miner digging in the southeast of the land uncovers over 150 soapstone carvings of beds. He lifts one carefully to his palm. Is it a fish eagle? A butler eagle? Each bed looks newly hatched. Shakily, he blows the soil off its body. It seems all that has held it down is a thousand years of heavy earth. A thousand and a half. What sort of incubation is this? He uncovers the rest of the beds, blowing the dry earth off each of them in ten, laying them down as though into a cradle. Each is about three inches high, the size of his own thumb. The wings are held down, the eyes are wide open. The beds are positioned fully upright. The movements of the earth, the thinning of the pliant soil surrounding them, the seasons of rain and dryness have not disturbed them. No hazardous made them fall. They emerge intact, according to how they were interred. Should he have uncovered them and held them to the sun, as he has, the miner wonders. Is that a sacrilege? He cannot undo his act of trespass, of transgression. He is a digger of soils. He has never been so close to splendor, to such perfect replication. He is unable to tell one bed from another. Here on his palm, the trace of a human being enraptured by the notion of light. Who was he? Soft, slippery, the touch of soapstone held against his skin. He tries to imagine the state of mind of a man who made over 150 beds and buried them one by one. He looks about him. He searches for the footsteps of a dead man. He feels delirious. Obedience is set in three different time periods. 1890, when a European discovers Great Zimbabwe. 1980, when Zimbabwe became independent after its long war of liberation. And 2002, on the eve of another rigged Robert Mugabe election. The book is a clear departure from Vera's previous work. Whether it was Why Don't You Cover Other Animals, Nehanda, Butterfly Burning, Under the Tongue, Without a Name, or The Stone Virgins, what connects all her books was an interest in historical moments and how they impacted women in Zimbabwean society. The representational strategies that various questioning are, however, not limited to those of colonialism. She's also very much concerned with subverting the representational strategies that apply to women, as well as the prevailing ideolo ideologies of gender. Vera once said, the position of women needs to be re-examined with greater determination and a forceful idea for change. In Zimbabwe, as perhaps elsewhere in the world, there is limited understanding of each moment of a woman's worst tragedy or her personal journey. Women have been expected to be the custodians of our society as well as its worst victims, carrying on no matter how hemmed in they feel and how abandoned in their need. Though obedience is nowhere near completion, but in its imperfect singularity, it captures the historical arc of Vera's preoccupation with the complicated story of Zimbabwe from colonial settlement to the 21st century. The book is not in handwritten format, but a sheaf of loose white printouts 
which make part of the Charles Lasson papers deposited at the Harry Ransom Center. There was not one but seven versions, all filed and boxed, drafts, certain copies, corrected proofs, as well as other documentation, including email correspondence, all neatly bundled together, tied with a ribbon or string, stacks and piles. The archive is an idiosyncratic collection. It is a mess. Chapter 1 is Chapter 7 in another version. I sit and marvel at the experience of being in an air-conditioned reading room with expensive wood-paneled walls. The room is quiet. Other scholars are also prying. I want to scream with excitement when I find something interesting. A photograph, a receipt, typescripts, email printouts. Reading obedience is in itself a process of sorting out information. There's never enough time to read and ponder during a visit to an archive. Before you know it, lights are being dimmed and the security is leading you out of the building. A week in Texas was not enough. I left with the feeling that I may never have the opportunity to read it again. But from time to time, I read some ruminations about the book by young American scholars because the archive is always about power and access. My first reading of obedience was in a long extended footnote in an obscure academic journal. The book became a fantasy in my mind. The only way to read it was to invest in an air ticket, an Airbnb. The last word is from Yvonne Vera's mother and biographer, Erika Guetai, who in a recent interview said, in a final moment as death approached, Yvonne would call me and say that she was scared of dying and leaving behind an unfinished book. She would say, Mom, I don't fear death, but I fear leaving behind an unfinished book. The title of the book was Obedience, and she was really passionate about it. It was really sad when she couldn't get a chance to finish it. I didn't want it to be released to the public because it was poorly edited. So a few people, like her late friend, Terence Ranger, had the manuscript, but only people with academic interests can study and analyze it. I'll never allow it to be published. It was unfinished, and because she was such a perfectionist, it would have been a disservice to let anyone else finish it. No one would have finished it like she would have, and I feel that if anyone else touches it, that might taint her legacy. I have a friend who told me that a few weeks ago she ordered several books she particularly wanted to read. She was delighted to have had them delivered to her gate. The next morning, as soon as she woke up, she decided to send a note to the people who had delivered the books to thank them, only to discover that she had dreamt their arrival. Present in the dream, the books were absent on the ground, nowhere to be seen at her door. There's so much to say about women and flying, or for that matter, about flying as dreaming, or dreaming as reading, and reading as crossing distances. A navigational act, flying requires us to confront altitude, to leave behind something or someone of value. Women may fly in its multitude of forms, and often in their own heads, to escape from the things that oppress them, to be free from general burdens, 
A flying book, we could imagine, or a woman as a book flying, is like a spirit caught in the act of freeing itself. This is especially so in the case of books by women and by those whose stories too often have been grounded, erased or suppressed. And yet, even when suppressed, they have retained an absent presence which has ultimately allowed them to partake of the power of a dream. My friend was dreaming of books flying to her. Lockdown only sharpens these long lines of thought. It's odd to think how many books have been flying around, at least early in the life of lockdown, traveling vast distances across the sky, while women stay on the ground, locked in, unable to fly even if they wanted to or could. We stay home, so do men, while almost everything else travels everywhere. Homebound, we dream more, including of the books that don't arrive, declared non-essential items in a worsening viral tide. There are books that don't arrive and others that have disappeared. Nowadays, there are books that are virtual and others that are tangible. Virtual books can be read without being touched, except on a screen. Tangible books can be read while being held and touched. We want to fly books to ourselves, even when we can, with enough searching, find almost anything online. And we search for real books that have become strangely absent. I myself have been searching persistently for my copy of Roxane Gay's memoir, Hunger. I've wanted it so much that I keep returning to the pal where it lived until it disappeared. Perhaps my friend who dreamt of books arriving secretly has it. She said she was afraid to read it for what it would reveal about herself. I wanted Hunger not because I hadn't read it, but because I had. Hunger is available on Amazon at $7.27. Why don't I get hold of Hunger, even if I can? Why couldn't I find it when you can find almost anything you want? Sison Kim Simang says of, in her memoir, Always Another Country, I've written in the margins of every book I've ever loved, adding, I write because I read. I wanted Hunger because I wanted to reread it, with the bits marked up that flew off the page at me before I even knew why, and to write with it in mind. It was the force of Gay's prose on her hungers of all sorts that stayed with me, here on the ground, in a time of prohibition and multiple forms of hunger, as she came flying in, present in her absence, a million miles away from her writing context. The lockdown was meant to save us from a virus, but for many it meant flying away from the virus only to be grounded by hunger. Seeing the queues for food parcels during South Africa's lockdown, unfurling along very long streets, the straight lines of apartheid urban planning and their utterly unforgiving sharp-angled corners recalled for me the queues to vote for democracy in 1994. Hunger for freedom, hunger for food. The question of hunger, I recall gay writing, was a physical problem to be overcome, and more than that. What she was able to voice was the complexity of her bodily lives. Persisting in their complications, flying off in their own directions, refusing to stick to a semblance of a singular path. Her subtitle is A Memoir of, brackets, My Body. The traumas of the body, recursive, 
unspooling from itself, or, to be precise, a living being. The precise and imprecise paradoxes of embodiment. People think they know the why of my body. They do not, she wrote. What are the costs of survival? I remember her asking. Remembering a book is not the same as reading it. To open a book and to read it is to mark it, to lace it with traces of our own writing, our own thoughts, those induced by the book. Such traces are often written at the margins of the text itself. They constitute the remembrance of our reading. For a book to fly, it often needs such traces on the page and in our mind. Without them, some books are easily forgotten. The stories they tell are grounded, caught in the clutches of their pages. For a story to fly requires a conscious act of memorialization. Sisonki Msimang says that writing for her is like flying. It is the moment when she can leave. She can begin to leave where she is in geographic space. For her, the turbulence you fly into is half the point. This is especially so, she writes, for an opinionated middle-class black woman such as herself, writing about race and feminism, amongst other things. I write into an embrace of the criticism I get every week online. I lean into the troll hate and I write against it, she says, adding that sometimes the trolls help me, they provide me with handles, with layers of discussion worth having. She writes her books, including her memoir, to, quote, take Africans and women and humans out of the impossibility of the situations in which we have found ourselves stranded. Stranded, or we could say, grounded. Writing a novel, writes Deborah Levy in her memoir, The Cost of Living, requires many hours of sitting still, as if on a long-haul flight, final destination unknown, but a route of sorts mapped out. In order to land it, to make it into a book that others want to read, writing has to become more interesting than everyday life, she says. Water and paper are often taken as opposites, or at least things that should be kept far apart. Perhaps for this reason, we seldom think about books that end up in the ocean. We know a lot about books travelling on the ocean, being transported to different parts of the world. We also know a lot about books that deal with or tell stories about the sea. But we know very little about books in the ocean. In this short talk, I'll give some examples and discuss their importance. Books which end up in the water are more common than one might initially think. In previous centuries, the crew of storm-wracked sailing ships turfed cargo to lighten the vessel. The heaviest items went first, and consignments of books occasionally found themselves heaved into the ocean. Another less dramatic instance involved lazy sailors who had not kept their logbooks up to date and conveniently let them slip overboard. Another source of books overboard was passengers travelling between British possessions, throwing pirated books into the ocean as they approached port in order to avoid a fine from customs examiners. In a more contemporary setting, with books being more plentiful, throwing volumes overboard can be a sign of leaving an old life behind. As Langston Hughes did, steaming out of New York Harbour in 1923 on his maiden voyage as a sailor, 
Leaning over the rail of the SS Malone, he hurled the books, mostly acquired during one year of a science degree at Columbia, as far as he could. It was, he said, like throwing a million bricks out of my heart. He continues, the books went down in the moving water, then I straightened up, turned my face to the wind and took a deep breath. In Michelle de Kretz's novel, Questions of Travel, a character, Hester, returns by ship to Sydney after a youthful and extended sojourn in London. The ship makes a stop in Sri Lanka. Hester, quote, stood at the ship's rail late one night. The 11 volumes of her diary splashed one by one into Colombo Harbour, close quote. The sea has long betokened forgetting, something imperial governments wished to do during the time of decolonisation. From the 1950s to the 1970s, incriminating documents were destroyed by British colonial officials by burning, or in some cases by dumping into the sea, especially in the Caribbean. Known as Operation Legacy, the programme was intended to avoid the press attention that was occasioned by large-scale burning of documents as the British left India. What can we learn from putting books and water closer together? These examples make us think about the uses of the ocean, for marking rites of passage, for forgetting, for political erasure and violence, as a rubbish dump. Water becomes a medium of memory and forgetting, of ruling and political authority. Books overboard also invite us to go below the waterline. We are accustomed to thinking about the surface of the sea, of human movement across it. In the age of climate change and rising sea levels, we need to engage more fully with oceans. Absent books provides an unexpected route for doing so. My focus is on a book that was written and published but unfortunately got burnt and buried on social media. Although it was banned and dismissed, this book is still very present to me and I'm going to talk about how it got banned on social media largely because of its grammatical errors and some typos. So thinking about this book made me realize that indeed social media has the power to birth bestsellers and also to burn books. In a digital age, the banning of books does not have to be a phys physical act. It can be a virtual one, as was the case with Bonang Mateva's autobiography titled From A to B. So witnessing the vicious social media frenzy around the book reminded me of this African proverb. A cutting word is worse than a bowstring. A cut may heal, but the cut of a tongue does not. Words shared online, particularly on Twitter and Med Mateva's autobiography. What's Goodreads recognizes from A to B as a story of a black child who achieves huge dreams, even the ones she dared not dream, through hard work and rising from the pangs of an abusive relationship. On Twitter, the reactions were different. The book became a joke overnight, largely because of its grammatical errors and typos. Black Twitter had a field day, or rather, days tearing the book apart. The book was dismissed and trashed while Monang herself was not spared. On social media, very few people appreciated the book as a literary product. The vast majority were more invested in using the book to condemn Monang for a multitude of alleged moral and social transgressions. Black Twitter rushed to conflate unrelated aspects of Bonang's private life with the shortcomings of the book. 
As a result, such commentators did not evaluate the book on its literary merits, but consumed it through a filter of spite. Many became self-professed book critics overnight. These are some of the tweets to that effect. What a waste of trees for such a terrible piece of writing. Whereas I made sure my friends buy this book, now they want me to host an A to Z session to justify grammar issues. So disrespected. And the last one is, I'm waiting for exclusive books to tell us to come get our refunds for selling us such a terrible piece of writing. So while we're now familiar with the argument that the internet poses a threat to the traditional book industry, little is said about the reputational damage it can cause when typographical and other errors occur. The pages that had errors went viral, which created the impression that the entire book was littered with errors. There is no way to establish just how many of the people who commented on the book had actually read it, but generally, they all seem to be sharing the exact screenshots of the same pages. So amidst the bad reviews, it seemed there was nothing good about the book. Hence, I was pleasantly surprised upon stumbling on some profound nuggets such as this. Nothing is as instant as the world wants us to believe. In the times of instant gratification, it is important to note that worthwhile carriers and or brands still need some of that traditional slow cooking. And the second one is, many people think that mentors are meant to change your life and that you'll find this all-knowing person, then everything in your life will work. But that's not what a mentor is for. A mentor is just there to guide you. You must create the plans, the blueprint, the goals that the mentor then comes and helps you with. Had I simply gone by the prevailing sentiments regarding the book, I might not have bothered to read, let alone buy myself a copy. The power of social media is that it has changed how we consume books and invited many of us to assume authority over areas that are not our specialty. Perhaps professional literary critics Publishers and editors might have given the book a fair chance, but the panel of social media jurists did not. Instead, many of them took delight in criticizing the book, mocking Wonang and being a mob of virtual stone throwers. The participation in this stone throwing by prominent celebrities simply fueled the flames, thus burning the book. One might argue that this kind of social media shaming as its uses is the mockery force the publishers and Wonang to have the book removed from the shelves, revised and relaunched as a second edition. However, the nature of engagement around the book did not rise to the level of constructive criticism but was more of trolling. It is also telling that despite the strength of Wonang's brand, especially in South Africa, her book could be so severely undermined by negative social media reactions. It makes one wonder how less known individuals might fare should their own books be subjected to such harsh and kind scrutiny. We have entered an age where books are banned digitally and where aspiring authors might be forced to self-censor for fear of falling victim to social media mobs. Social agents like Black Twitter assume the authority to use trolling as a disciplining mechanism and simply cancel the person and or the idea. And in closing, we find that while Wonang's book is still available in bookshops, the appetite for it has been, or rather was suppressed, by the initial backlash on social media.
but it is still for me that is the go-to book when in need of some inspiration.